I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we talked with European Commission Trade Commissioner Cecilia Maelstrom, who's in Washington to meet with U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer. Maelstrom has been urging the U.S. to negotiate removing tariffs on industrial goods, including cars, and we started by asking her if trust between the United States was rebuilding it. Well, I think it is. I mean, the U.S. and Europe, we are old friends, old allies. We have so much in common and we should work together to address the imbalances, the injustices in the trade system. Reforming the WTO, looking at how we can address China, uh, make them comply with international rules, writing new rules, etc. So uh, this is what we should focus on. But there has been difficulties and difficult moments between the EU and US lately. We hope that we can rebuild that trust working in a variety of areas. So I come here regularly to meet with different people, of course, with Ambassador Lighthizer, but also with others to see how we can you know, preserve this very strong and important alliance. Let's talk about some of those difficulties. What are the specific sticking points that you see right now in your conversations? Well, we do not um, we do not contest that one of the problems on global trade today is China dumping uh, dumping products on the global market, subsidizing their industries, and creating imbalances. Uh, but the way to address this is not imposing tariffs on the European Union. Uh, we were quite uh, upset that we were, um, the, the, the solution to this were to impose tariffs on a variety of allies, including the European Union, on steel and aluminium. And there is a threat also on car and car tariffs. And we sure hope that this will not happen so that we can together uh, work on a variety of issues facilitating trade between us, but also addressing uh, issues such as uh, China and, and how they behave on the, the international arena and reforming the WTO. Got it. So a pretty long laundry list there. China, car tariffs, the WTO. Let's talk about car tariffs. Are you still worried the U.S. will impose a 20 percent, a 25 percent tariff on imported cars? And if so, what would be the impact on the global economy if that happens? Well, we haven't seen the report headed to, to the president. Uh, we still hope, of course, that it will not recommend tariffs on uh, cars for, for European Union. It will be very harmful for our economy. It will be harmful for the global economy. And it will be very harmful for the U.S. economy. Because, of course, many cars are produced here in the, uh, in, in the U.S. with car parts from Europe. They sustain many jobs. As a whole, European trade and investment support 7 million jobs in the U.S. So we have a strong relationship here. And we don't want to, to jeopardize this. This would have effects on the whole global economy. 
And as I understand, nobody is really asking for these car tariffs yeah. here in the US either. So of course, if that were to happen, and I really hope that will not be the case, we will have to impose rebalancing measures and then our relationship on other areas would be very difficult. Yeah. Talk to us about any rebalancing measures, retaliatory tariffs. Can you talk to us about your thinking about which sectors you would look to if you had to be forced there? Well, we have started to prepare a, a draft list. list. It is not public yet. We have to consult with the EU member states, so I don't want to go into that. It will have the value of uh, around 20 billion euros in, in total. But again, I really hope we don't have to do so because we shouldn't impose tariffs on each other. We should work together. And Europe is an ally in the, uh, the work that US wants to do, reforming WTO, working on, on China, addressing some of the, the market distortions that are there. And of course, that work would be so much more difficult if this happened. We heard today uh, Mario Draghi cite protectionism as a contributing fa factor in investment slowdown. We also know that a lot of European uh, companies sell a lot to China. To what degree would you say that Trump's trade threats and actions, even just vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, have contributed to the slowdown in the European economy? Well, I think most international organizations, the OECD, the World Bank, IMF, many think tanks have warned that these uh, escalating possible trade war and protectionism is bad for global economy. Uh, tariffs is not making, <laughs> making us richer in, in any way. And uh, of course, we are so interlinked with each other, the big economies, so it has effects on all of us. So uh, it, it will, and if it deteriorates the situation, it right. would, would be worse. It would affect jobs also here in the US. You had mentioned the WTO. In the past, you've talked about the need to protect these rules-based multilateral organizations, but the US is proven to be kind of hostile to the setup here. Are we at risk of seeing the WTO die? Well, WTO is in big need of reform. Nobody denies this. We need to work to reform the way we work internally. We need to uh, how we make decisions. We need to see how we can write new rules because it's not really up to the kind of uh, of state capitalism that China has, for instance. Uh, and we need to see how we can um, increase the transparency and the trust of the members. Mm. And in many of these issues, we are working with the U.S. We have a working group with the U.S. and Japan and the EU. We we are meeting on a ministerial level right. to try to write new rules. Uh, the big threat is, of course, that the, the conflict resolution sort of dispute mechanism yes. has a second level called the appellate body. And here uh, we are soon running out of judges. And here the U.S. is blocking the appointment of the judges. And this threatens the, uh, the enforcement of the, the system. And that would be very severe. Then we dove into the headlines dragging down the biotech sector this week. The Nasdaq Biotech Index fell on news that Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Gottlieb was resigning from the Trump administration. Gottlieb had pushed for faster approvals of copycat drugs and led a movement towards quicker approvals in biotech's fastest growing fields like gene therapies. So we spoke with Dennis Purcell, who is the founder of the early stage biotech investment firm Iceland Capital, about what's next for the sector. We started by asking if the market was right to be nervous about Gottlieb's premature exit from the FDA. 
think somewhat the uh, science is moving so fast and we're getting all these new drugs that are trying to get approved at the FDA. And Scott was one that really was ahead of the curve a little bit because these new drugs are curative and they're really um, high science. And Scott moved the FDA into the 21st century. So I, I think it's natural that the market is a little upset about this. And Aisling, of course, invests in early stage biotech firms. What's the level of communication and involvement your firms have with the FDA? I mean, at some point they'll have to engage with the FDA, but how closely do they work with the FDA right now? Sure. Ultimately, uh, firms have to go before the FDA to get their drug approved or not approved. Mm -hmm. But before that happens, you have to run clinical trials. And so most biotech firms go to the FDA pretty early and say to the FDA, how do I run these trials? And the FDA says that seems reasonable or it doesn't seem reasonable. So there's constant contact for years before you go to the FDA to just talk about how you're going to run your clinical trials, um, will they be acceptable to the FDA, and then ultimately, after you run a pivotal trial, which is a large-scale trial to show whether the drug actually works in large number of patients, um, that's what the FDA will approve or not approve the drug on. You obviously, you sort of talk about the front edge of science, the cutting edge. This is something that you're looking at when you're involved in these small startup companies. I mean, Loxo was a key celebratory investment of yours. You took it to be able to go and not only list, but then be bought out by another company, Eli Lilly in this case. Talk to us about where is exciting in terms of the development of drugs right now. What's, what are the key challenges that you face when you're looking at biotech investment? Well, what we're, what we're finding is that the um, smaller biotech companies are now providing all the innovation for the big companies. Ah. So what we've seen, at, at particularly in the last six months or so, is many of the big pharmaceutical companies buying the new innovative drugs, the new innovative companies that are doing gene therapies, that are doing cell therapies, that are doing things that are actually curing diseases. So in fact, in the last couple of months, we saw the first gene therapy that was approved that actually cured an inherited form of blindness. So children that were born blind now actually had a gene um, that was put into their eye and they now can see. The question that we have as these gene therapies develop is that they're very expensive. That particular um, treatment costs $850,000. Lux Turner, right? Here. Yes, yes, that's the one. When you make investments in these early stage companies, are you looking at the founder and deciding whether to invest based on the person or the technology or the therapy? Because in most cases, when we talk to early stage investors, they're saying they're going with the person. And an idea can always be changed, but the person can't be changed. Um, and most most companies do have to change course, so you really have to pivot a lot of times because the science leads you one place or it leads you another place. And what we need to see is a, a team. It's not just a person, a okay. team and advisors that, as the science leads them down a path, are able to pivot when we have to move. So the team is very important. Um, and, and the end market is important. Is there an unmet need um, that, is in, that the drug uh, is going to hit? Is it innovative? Is it something new that's going to cure a disease that otherwise has not been curable? But, but there, you just painted the, the problem that we've got with a very innovative way of solving what is an incurable disease for many in terms of an eye affliction, blindness, but costing so much mm -hmm. that it... Is there an end market there for? How do you decide that a company not only can build the right drug that's going to be phenomenally life-changing for many, but is in any way going to be able to get to the market at such high costs? And, that, and that's the issue that we have. It, it really started with a, a cure for hepatitis C 
we uh, developed a, a company called Gilead, developed a cure for hepatitis C, which otherwise was not curable, and charged $85,000 for it and was roundly criticized. And what people didn't really understand was that it saved about $400,000 to the system mm -hmm. because people didn't need liver transplants and the like. So what we need to understand or we have to wrestle with is that these cures are one-time cost, but they save so much to the system over time. So we, had, we need to come up with new innovative payment systems where in fact maybe the payment is spread over a period of five or 10 years, much like you pay your mortgage for your house over 10 or 20 years. So instead of just paying everything at once, we need more innovative systems. We need the, the insurance companies to only pay for those drugs that work. So that's just gonna be a big thing going forward, particularly because there's so much in the pipeline now that are gonna cure drugs that are gonna cure diseases. So a true long-term investment is what we're talking true. about here. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We also spoke with Jamie Montgomery, who is the founder and managing director of March Capital Partners from his namesake conference, the Montgomery Summit, which attracts over a thousand global technology executives, investors, and entrepreneurs, and is in its 16th year. We started by talking about the ongoing tech lash, and we asked Jamie how big and urgent of a problem the public backlash to the industry was for the attendees of his conference. I mean, it's a real issue globally. It's not one of our top 10 issues here, though. Uh, you know, the, you're seeing uh, a couple of big companies behave poorly, Google, Facebook particularly, and a lot of concern about the strength of um, uh, uh, Google and particularly Amazon. And, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of issues in the world, and this is one manifestation of the issues. Uh, Dan Schulman just gave a talk this morning. Uh, he touched on the importance of having broad buy-in in the economy, in income inequality, and perhaps the way some of the new fintech can eliminate uh, uh, some of the costs for the uh, the workers in America who are having a big chunk of their paycheck taken away from them. So technology can still solve a lot of the problems we face, but in some cases we've had some companies that have been behaving badly. Uh, Dan referred to it as uh, you know two two wolves and a sheep, and the uh, wolves uh, voting on what they should have for dinner, and uh, somehow that kind of. You look at Google and Facebook and the American public as the sheep, and uh, I think they voted to have us for dinner, and I think the uh, dinner's over. So Dinner's over, go. but you've still got money to put to work in perhaps creating the next appetizers that are being brewed up at the moment, Jamie. And I'm interested in where you're putting the $300 million that you've just recently raised to work, what sort of key opportunities you see, and indeed how you're focusing on perhaps ensuring that these new talents that are coming to the surface have got corporate governance firmly in their eyesight. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, look, I mean, we're driven by uh, good common sense and, and high ethical standards, and that's a, something that we require amongst our CEOs and entrepreneurs that we work with. Uh, we try and set a good example for them. We have a large discussion today on the, you know, the societal impacts of AI, and again tomorrow. Uh, and we have to be very careful. Uh, some ways, you know, AI can be um, you know, uh, very positive. Uh, uh, be 
color, gender, age, blind, and making decisions. In other cases, it can be uh, inadvertently uh, discriminatory. So you really have to spend a lot of time with our AI companies to make sure that we're not inadvertently, uh, you know, doing something that we, you know, the company shouldn't be doing. But uh, overall, you know, it's a very positive attitude. We'll probably put about 20, 25% of our capital into India. We haven't had a big call in China. I know that's a subject we've talked a lot about in Bloomberg in the past. We feel as if India's got a lot of promise over the next uh, uh, decade. Um, uh, it's the fastest growing economy in the world. And um, uh, you know, one-tenth of the people in the world are an Indian under the age of um, uh, 25. One-fifth of the world population is an Indian. We. Uh, one of our companies that's here today does 70% of electronic payments for one-fifth of the world's population. That's a great company, and uh, you know, we're making India a better country with that company. And uh, But 75% uh, of our, our investment will go into uh, AI-enabled uh, software companies. We've got some great companies there uh, um, that are really... Um, uh, you know, you go back 15 years ago, we would have had like Salesforce here or Workday, mm -hmm. and now it's the next generation of those companies which are AI enabled. So Got it's, it. a, it's an exciting time. You mentioned software. We understand you're hedging your bets for an economic downturn by focusing on enterprise software. Explain your thinking behind that. Yeah, well, um, you know, at some point in time we'll have a slowdown. And I think it's important, if you're selling into a company's operating budget as opposed to its capital expenditure budget, you usually have more resiliency in a downturn. If you look at uh, what happened in the 2008 recession, the uh, companies that were selling software as a service uh, were growing uh, at a much more uh, rapid and sustainable pace than those who were selling enterprise license. So CapEx budgets get cut. So when we look at our companies, first of all, are they doing something meaningful that we want to be involved in? And if it's something meaningful, uh, you know, for example, CrowdStrike's a leading cybersecurity company. If you have a downturn, you're not going to cut your cyber budget. It's just existentially important to the company. And, and other um, places where we're reducing costs by 25 or 50 percent, you're going to accelerate your spending there. So we're, you know, we, we, we stress test all of our investments to make sure they're properly capitalized and then we're selling into budgets that will be resilient. I think it's just good common sense. It's good common sense. I'm interested by... Or uncommon common sense. <laughs> uncommon common sense. So going, focusing on business <laughs> software, basically yeah, exactly. key trends, key themes that can't be uprooted by any cyclical downturn that we see in economies. I'm interested by your focus on India in particular, and therefore many people come on and say, hey, we're getting into China. How much do you think we'll see the hub of the future when it comes to technology being built out of India? Is it at the expense of China? Does China do something? In, is it too late to be getting into the tech scene there for your perspective? Well, I mean, we're in some ways, you know, we'll, we have about 650 million of assets. So we're, a, you know, a boutique firm. So we can't do everything. We have to pick our, our fights. Uh, we have a very positive view on India. I have nothing against China. I don't think I know it well enough to go over there and be successful. But I think if you look at how the world's technology is going to lay out and you draw a map of the world and you say, you know, U.S. is blue, I think India is going to be in our sphere of influence. So is Europe. So is South America. And if China is red, I think, you know, maybe East, you know, Russia and some parts of Africa will be heavily influenced by the Chinese. And uh, I don't think, you know, an enterprise software, we can go into China and expect them to play friendly with us for a long period of time. Yeah. Whereas I think India, you've got a great diaspora of Indian entrepreneurs in the U.S., uh, uh, the wonderful universities, you've got a common language, you've got some 
a lot of uh, cultural uh, similarities, and uh, yeah, it's just it's just great opportunity. And so we're 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 bullish on it. There's always challenges in every country. There's an election coming up this year in India that Modi, if he's reelected, is another five years of uh, economic reforms. Uh, uh, you know, there's challenges there, but you know, all, all in all, the positives vastly outweigh some of the concerns we'd have. Then we took a long-term view of the markets with James Anderson, who is a partner and portfolio manager at Bailey Gifford, as well as the co-manager of the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. James is a veteran investor who has notched up a remarkable track record of early stakes in companies including Tencent, Tesla, Alibaba, and Amazon. James describes himself as a growth equity investor and notably does not use benchmarks to measure performance. Bloomberg senior deals reporter Ed Hammond also sat in on this interview, and we started by asking James how he assessed his performance without benchmarks and how his investors should. Well, the first answer to that, Scarlett, is over a very long period of time. <laughs> What's long? I, 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 I'm tempted to say forever, um, but I'm getting old, as you observed already. Um, so I, I think 10 years is the period that fits in with our turnover rate, which is approximately 10%. And we actually think that's where our hope for advantage lies, mm. because you know, we really are looking at a different set of information to be able to understand what matters over that period of time. So has the rest of the industry sort of got it wrong to benchmark? I, I, I think so. I... I genuinely believe that stock returns are much more concentrated than the bulk of the industry perceives, if that doesn't sound too arrogant. We were very interested in a piece of research that Professor Bessenbein of Arizona State University came up with a couple of years ago, which indicated that since 1926, almost exactly half of the excess return in US stocks over bonds comes from just 90 companies out of 26,000. Mm. So the task is about giving yourself the opportunity to own some of those rather than to be sucked into paying too much attention, dare I say it, to the, the daily tumult. But James, if we look at the traditional active managers at the moment, they do seem to be trying to be much better at proving their case as active managers. We've just seen Wellington, obviously, in the Bristol-Myers deal. We're very vocal ahead of a vote. Uh, and just today, we've seen Vanette come out against Barrack and Newmont and say, you know, it doesn't love the deal. Are we going to start to see more of this, this thing where you have active managers essentially proving their worth by doing something rather than just sitting there? I hope so, but perhaps, Ed, you're comment implies that people are doing it as a reaction against both passive and the hedge fund activists. Um, and I think they've got to do it because there are genuine beliefs involved rather than as an action to confront challenges in our own industry. But, you know, I, 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 I my colleagues would very much believe that we ought to be trying to reclaim activism for growth investors. And very often that implies wanting companies to invest and wanting companies to take risk. And I think taking risk and investing is a quintessential part of what the stock markets are there for. Okay, well, speaking of taking risk, Bailey Gifford is not a tech investor per se, but you, the firm, has always been very focused on tech. Uh, from your 1908 investment in uh, the Ford Model You're T supply old. chain, <laughs> yes, not you per se, the firm, um, to more recently equity in Lyft, the challenger to Uber. Uber, why is tech such a natural fit for Bailey Gifford? Uh, I think because of two elements. Uh, the first one is that actually in most cases, technologies and their process of change lasts for very long periods. 
um, they are suited to the decade after decade. Mm. You know, usually for one technology, it takes about 15 years to go from naught to 100%. percent. Mm. Um, therefore, it's natural in that way. But the second part is we respond very enthusiastically to founders who are prepared to think over those time periods. And you know, from some of the stocks you mentioned, you can see that they would come together, those two elements. Mm -hmm. you know, I can't imagine investing in Tencent or Amazon without the presence of the founders in these companies driving that vision in precisely the way you're describing. I just want to pick up on the Amazon point there because it, it is relevant. Obviously, Jeff Bezos is sort of intertwined with every aspect of that company. Now, historically, he's been kind of in the background, this sort of aloof god figure that has done everything but hasn't been much in the public eye. <laughs> That's changed a lot recently, you know, whether it's his, uh, his sort of making his, his relocation to New York, potential relocation as a kind of game show, or his predilection for taking selfies, whatever it might be. He's much more in the news at the moment. Is that a concern for big investors like yourself? I, I don't think so because I believe his mind is so fertile, so all-embracing that I very much doubt whether he's taking away his commitment to the grave new ideas for Amazon as well. You know, actually, if there was one within his activities that would make me at all concerned, it would probably be the interest in space because that is so dramatic and so important. In other words, he can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> Seemingly, many of these billionaires think they can too. We look at Tesla, another investment of yours, and he seems to be doing both things at the same time. I'm interested by fertile minds and where you find them yeah. at the moment, because we've talked about big Chinese companies, talked about big US mm. companies. You're flown over from uh, the United Kingdom, well, Scotland. But where is, it, is China really becoming the next Silicon Valley rather than London or some of the other tech hubs? Where are you seeing really take on the mantle? Oh, I, I, I think... At scale terms, frankly, Silicon Valley and China are the only ones that matter. Now, of course, we can talk nuance of, of, of people trying to make some grounds. But, you know, I sometimes think over here, it's very difficult to explain just the amount of energy and the scale that China does represent. Perhaps one instance of it, we invest in Meituan, the principally yeah. food delivery, but many other things company. Now, they are currently delivering something over 20 million meals a day. The Grubhub comparison is about half a million. Uh, the delivery here won about one million. And we know that many of these technology-driven companies, scale is their greatest friend. So I think China is really important from that point of view. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.